You may remember uh, that one of Donald Trump's campaign promises was to build a wall, right? A border wall between the United States and Mexico to stop illegal immigrants and drug cartels and uh, terrorists from entering into the country. Uh, but just like in Nehemiah's day, in Trump's day, he faced tremendous opposition, right? His enemies wanted uh, to stop that wall at all costs, and uh, his enemies uh, decided that they were not going to make it easy on him no matter what. And by the end of his presidency, he was able to build 21 miles of wall and replace 34 miles of old broken down wall. Uh, and that seems like a lot, but the Texas border is 1,200 miles long. Uh, so in the grand scheme of things, not very long. Well, the new administration came in and, of course, shut down uh, the building of the wall. Uh, but then Governor Abbott said, well, if you won't build it, we're going to build our own wall. And so he has announced plans to build the wall. And already he started to uh, put up some pieces of the wall, although uh, it's a long way to go. Uh, but if we've learned anything about construction of walls, it's that it's a very divisive topic, right? Some people are for it. Some people are against it. Uh, should we put it up? Should we not put it up? If we do put it up, who's going to pay for it? Uh, these questions are very divisive. Now, you may be for the border wall, or you may be against it. Uh, Molly had a cousin who lived on the border of Arizona and Mexico, uh, and she had farm animals, and, and she w worried because she watched every single night. People would run from Mexico through her backyard and into the United States, and she was worried about her safety and the safety of her livestock, and uh, she had a shotgun, and she was well prepared to use it if necessary. Uh, but these are the, the, the situations that people who don't have walls are faced with, and, and that's what the situation was like in Nehemiah's day. And I imagine that if we lived in a border town, like maybe McAllen or Laredo uh, or Brownsville, perhaps, we might be more in favor of the wall because the danger is literally in our own backyard, just like it was in Nehemiah's day. So my purpose this morning is not to get you all riled up about politics and the wall. Uh, my purpose is to show you that walls have always been a divisive issue. They were controversial in, in our day, and they're controversial 2,500 years ago in Nehemiah's day. Uh, so the exiles who had returned from Persia, Babylon, uh, had made some progress, right? They had built the altar. They had built the temple foundation. Years later, they had even completed uh, the temple itself. Uh, but the city had no walls. And a city without walls is uh, in obvious danger from armies of marauders who would come in and take whatever uh, they wanted. Uh, there was no protection for that city. And as Nehemiah said in chapter 2, a city without walls is a disgrace. It's a disgraceful thing to live in a city that doesn't have walls. So Nehemiah was able to urge them, encourage them to arise and rebuild. And after Nehemiah gave his testimony about how God was with him and, and Nehemiah testified about how God showed his favor on uh, Nehemiah with Artaxerxes and had Artaxerxes' authority and authorization to go build this wall, well, the people were all in. But just like the building of the border wall today, uh, Nehemiah's wall construction project was a massive undertaking, an enormous undertaking. So imagine uh, trying to build a wall without modern tools, right? There's no cranes, there's no backhoes, there's nothing like that. Uh, there's no modern machinery, there's no modern materials. Even the materials they had were burned down stones from the last temple that had been built. So these are the things that they had to use to build. And on top of all these physical challenges with the materials and the, and the manpower and the tools, they faced intense opposition of people who were right there 
uh, right in front of them who opposed them at every turn because they didn't want to see the wall built. So as I said, we're going to fly over chapter 3 today. We'll cover chapter 4 in more depth. Uh, remember at the end of chapter 2, uh, the people agreed to rise and rebuild and put their hands to the good work. And though Sanballat and Tobiah mocked uh, the Jews and what they were doing, Nehemiah prayed and then he acted and then he led the people uh, to rebuild this wall. So chapter 3 is essentially just a census of the gates of Jerusalem and the people who were assigned to each individual work assignment for the rebuilding of the walls. So <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, as I read a minute ago, uh, Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and installed its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them the son of Imri built. So Eliashib was the, the grandson of Jeshua. Jeshua, you may remember, was the high priest who returned with Zerubbabel a couple generations ago uh, with that first wave of exiles. So this Eliashib uh, consecrated Nehemiah's project. He consecrated the building of the walls because this was a God-ordained project. Everybody knew who was in Nehemiah's camp knew that Nehemiah uh, had God's approval from this thing. So chapter 3 is a longest chapter, but what it is is basically uh, from, uh, from, this is a, a view of what it looks like. Uh, the author basically starts at the Sheep Gate and works counterclockwise around the city of Jerusalem to the Fish Gate, to the Old Gate, to the Valley Gate, and all the way around, and basically tells us uh, which gates were repaired and who was working on those particular gates. And four times in the chapter, the author mentions specifically uh, that the people who were assigned to do the work were actually doing the work in front of or opposite their own homes. So they lived right near the gate and that portion of the wall that they were working on. So I, I imagine that, that Nehemiah wanted them to be personally invested in the work, just like uh, if we lived along a border town of Texas and we wanted that wall to go up, we would be extra careful, extra vigilant to build that wall well that's in front of our house because we're personally invested in that. And so you have a bunch of people all working toward a common goal now who believe Nehemiah, they trust in, in the God of Nehemiah and, and their God who promised uh, Nehemiah that he would be with him. And so they're all in on this working project and they're working together to do it. And I just think there's something very special about working together because working together uh, builds a common bond. It builds unity between people. Uh, I remember when we first bought this building. Anybody remember when we first bought this building? Do you remember what it looked like when we bought this building? And do you remember what it smelled like when we bought this building? Uh, it was a bit uh, unnerving, to say the least. Uh, it required a whole lot of work. It was a total mess, but we worked together. Uh, we cleaned it out. We held yard sales. We, we scrubbed and we painted and we, and we rebuilt. And uh, that which was beyond us, we, we asked people to help us. So we hired contractors to, to help us do it. We painted the place. We installed the floors. There's not one inch of this building anywhere you look that we haven't touched uh, this little congregation with our own hands uh, to have fixed this building up. And, and doesn't that uh, just create such a strong bond? And I remember the first service that we held here. Any of you remember this? This was Christmas Eve 2017. The heat wasn't even turned on yet. And so we all came in here with our blankets and our coats and we, we huddled up and we, we worshiped and we sang and we glorified God and we thanked him for giving us this beautiful building. And I just think that 
there's something to this about how when the people work together, how bonds are formed. And for this particular church, uh, this church was born through a suffering and difficult circumstances, and that brought you all closer together. And then uh, we bought this building, and we worked hard to make this building the way we wanted it, and that brought us closer together. So there's, there's just no substitute for uh, suffering together, struggling together, working together to build bonds. A church body that works together, grows closer to each other, and grows closer to Jesus. And I think that's what uh, we've seen in our body, and we see it uh, in Nehemiah's uh, group of people, too. Uh, how they grew closer together and trusted each other uh, and trusted God in faith. Well, by the end of chapter 3, Nehemiah had mentioned uh, all of these walls and each of these gates uh, and the people who built them. And so as we come now to chapter 4, here's where the opposition becomes more stiff. Uh, The enemies uh, of Nehemiah and his fellow Jews rose up and they wanted to stop this construction and they used the the age-old tactics of fear, uh, threats, intimidation to try to stop this project from happening. Uh, And so uh, the first thing they tried was mocking in verses 1 to 6. And then they move on to threats of violence and conspiracy uh, throughout the rest of the chapter. And what we see is that Nehemiah's response is always the same. He prays, uh, and then he encourages, and then he acts, and they put their hand to the plow, and they get busy doing the work, and God is with them in it the entire way. So let's look at this first attack that they face uh, in chapter 4, which is ridicule. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy people of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore the temple for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the heaps of rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox were to jump on it, he would break the stone wall down. Well, these are nasty people, right? Sanballat was a very nasty character. In chapter 2, he was angry that Nehemiah would care about the Jews and that he would want to rebuild this temple. And now that he heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry. Uh, And so he got himself among a crowd of people, a crowd of Samaritans and well-to-do people, and they just stood there mocking these Jews with questions meant to demean them uh, and their efforts to rebuild. So uh, he called them feeble, which is a Hebrew word that Isaiah used to describe a withering or a fading plant. Uh, Isaiah also used that word to describe a a hopeless people. Uh, So this is Sanballat's view of the Jews and their cause, right? It's feeble, it's it's pointless, it's hopeless. There's no way it's ever going to happen. Happen. Uh, Can they finish it in a day means they have no conception of the size of the project they are undertaking. And can they revive burned stones uh, speaks to the the stones that... uh, Uh, that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar had burned when when they conquered the city. Uh, And so it speaks to their lack of materials as well. So Sanballat implied that they have no manpower, uh, no materials, no knowledge of the job. And if that wasn't enough from Sanballat, he's got a sidekick, Tobiah, next to him, right? If a fox jumped on this wall, it would collapse. And you can just imagine Sanballat and Tobiah next to each other, right? Yucking it up, slapping each other on the back. You know, good one, Sanballat. Good one, Tobiah. You go next, right? Uh, keeping uh, ideas about how they're going to continue to mock and make fun of these Jews. Uh, and that's what they were doing. They, they were trying to verbally discourage them. 
Well, you've heard this, the phrase, I'm sure, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And that's true in a physical sense, but uh, really when you're being constantly discouraged like that, when people are, are constantly yelling at you and demeaning you and making fun of you and mocking you, that does take an emotional toll. And, you know, the things that they were saying were actually true. Uh, they did have very little manpower, very little materials, no modern tools or machinery. Uh, so that can cause people to doubt. And Nehemiah knew what they were doing, and he knew the effect that it might have. So what does Nehemiah do? His first response, as always, is to pray. So that's verses 4 and 5. Hear, O God, how we are an object of contempt. Return their taunting on their own heads and turn them into plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their guilt and do not let their sin be wiped out before you, for they have demoralized the builders." Well, Nehemiah prayed what is called an imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayer is when a person asks God to rain down judgment or revenge on a person uh, or the enemies for, of God for whatever uh, they are doing. And so uh, we might ask, is this an appropriate prayer? Should we rain down uh, asking God uh, to, to curse and, and, and judge our uh, enemies? Well, in the Old Testament, David prayed many prayers like this, right? The, the Psalms are filled with imprecatory uh, prayers like this. And of course, Jesus hadn't come yet with his teaching to turn the other cheek and to pray for our enemies. So in, in uh, Nehemiah's defense, uh, he thinks that he's praying in God's will because Sanballat and Tobiah were opposing God's work. This is God's ordained work, and these are God's enemies. So Nehemiah is not praying for himself as much as he's praying for God to do the work uh, and to uphold the work that God himself ordained. So uh, Nehemiah was, was asking that for God to exercise judgment in this way. And he was also, I think, reminding God of the promise that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where he said, those who bless Israel, I will bless. Those who curse Israel, I will curse. And here you have Sanballat and Tobiah clearly cursing Israel. So uh, Nehemiah is simply reminding God of the promises. Uh, and so this prayer that Nehemiah prayed would be in keeping with that promise. So He's asking God to uphold uh, his end of the bargain and to deal with them. Now, how God deals with his enemies, that's strictly within God's providence and his decision to make, right? Nehemiah may have suggested that God smote these people, but of course, it's up to God how he's going to deal with them. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But how he repays, well, that's up to him. So did God answer Nehemiah's prayer? Well, I would say that he most certainly did, just not in the way that Nehemiah prayed it, right? Nehemiah is kind of looking for brimstone to come down from the heavens, but instead God strengthens his people to do the work. Uh, and, and the result is verse 6. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So this is God's answer to prayer. He didn't kill the enemies, but he does strengthen the people, and they did get to work. Now, now the wall was only half as high as it needed to be, but man, can you imagine how encouraged these Jews must have been if they were to take a walk around the entire wall and see that it was joined at all points? And so you would have to hop this wall now. Uh, you couldn't just walk right through into the city. So as we, as we look at this particular passage and what we've seen so far is that the formula for success in Nehemiah is prayer and then action. Uh, when, whenever Nehemiah was challenged, prayer then action. And so Sam Ballad and Tobiah's first uh, attempt to stop the work through ridicule didn't work. So now they escalate their efforts uh, 
uh, talking about now violence and conspiracy uh, against the Jews. So now we have an international conspiracy, verse 7 and 8. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. So all of them conspired together to come to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Well, we've already said last week, if you'll recall, that Sanballat was a Horonite. He was from Beth Haran, which is just north of Jerusalem. And Tobiah was an Ammonite. He and the Ammonites lived to the east of Jerusalem. Geshem, the Arab, uh, the Arabs held the territory to the south of Jerusalem. And now there's a new player on the scene that wasn't mentioned last week. Uh, now he mentions the Ashdodites. Ashdod was a city in uh, the area known as Philistia, a Philistine territory. And it's right over here. Uh, here's Ashdod and here's Jerusalem. So you can see that Jerusalem is now surrounded on all sides by its enemies who want to stop this wall and want to stop uh, the people from success. So we're not told exactly what they planned to do, but you can imagine how frightening it would be to know that you're encircled by enemies on all sides uh, by people who want to do you ill uh, and want to stop this wall at all costs. And this makes me think about Israel today, right? Uh, not much has changed, right? It's 2,500 years later, this tiny country that is no bigger than New Jersey, surrounded on all sides by people who want to wipe it off the face of the earth, and yet it continues on. And so I believe the Bible is clear and history bears out uh, that God loves Israel and Israel is still God's chosen people. So if God wants Israel to prevail, and clearly he does, uh, it's going to prevail. So it survived the threat of Nehemiah's day and it has survived all the threats in the current day as well. So we have this international conspiracy now. Israel surrounded on all sides. And so what is Nehemiah gonna do? Well, let's look at his response. Same as always, right? We prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So when the opposition was ridicule, Nehemiah prayed. And when the opposition became more serious in terms of armed threats, Nehemiah again prayed. That's what he did first. And so uh, he knew, that, though, that he needed more than just prayer. He needed an armed guard, which I think is God's provision as well. He provided uh, this vision for Nehemiah to go and set up an armed guard, and this is how you ought to do it. And we've been saying since Nehemiah, as we started this study in Nehemiah, that people of action must first be people of prayer. And that's what Nehemiah was. He was a man of action, but first he was a man of prayer. So he prayed, and then the action was that he set up uh, this guard to guard against them day and night. But the opposition is starting to take its toll, right? The task is monumental, even though they have completed a large portion of the wall, uh, it could be very discouraging and defeating to have this relentless opposition. And so this is what happened. The opposition began to take its toll. And so in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, and yet there is so much rubble and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. So this is Judah's perspective. This is what the people in Judah are saying. And now verse 11 switches to what, they, what their opponents are saying. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to their work. So you have the people of Judah on the one hand discouraged. The, the opposition, this conspiracy, they think that they're going to have great success. They're going to sneak in. They're going to kill them and stop the work. 
And then verse 12, uh, you can see the effect that this is having as the Jews who lived near them came up and told us 10 times, which means many times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. <clears throat> so you can see that, that the, even though they're having some success, the opposition is having its desired effect. Well, I think unless you've served in the military and unless you've seen active combat, it would be difficult for us, for you and I, to understand the stress uh, that these people were under. They were not a trained army by, by any stretch, right? Uh, they were a ragtag group of returning exiles from Babylon, and the people who were still in the, in the area who were not even worthy to be exiled to Babylon in the first place because they were of low social status or had no particular usefulness uh, to Babylon. Uh, so this is the people who are in the land. Uh, and chapter 3 talks about various vocations that they had. Certainly they were not military people. Uh, there are mentioned perfumers, goldsmiths, administrators, priests, temple servants and merchants. This is their army, right? This is not, this is not you know, the Marines. This is a group of people who are not really trained to fight. And so uh, building construction isn't even their vocation, right? They don't know anything about building construction. They certainly don't know anything about being an armed soldier ready to fight against its enemies. And so this is way beyond any training they had. <clears throat> so obviously they were discouraged. And it's difficult to be opposed at every turn, and that's what they were. They were just constantly facing this opposition. And their enemies were reminding them of what they really already knew deep in their hearts, right? That they were absolutely and totally inadequate for this task. And that seems like a bad place to be, right? Emotionally, uh, mentally, to, to, to feel like we are completely inadequate for the task. But I think that sometimes that's the very best place that we can be, because it shows us how desperate we are for God. Uh, that's why Nehemiah prayed, and that's why we pray. That's why prayer is so important, because through it, God strengthens us for the task. He gives us a dream. He gives us a vision of what he wants to accomplish, and then he strengthens us on the way. And even as we go on the task, we face great obstacles, and, and then we, we have to keep praying as we realize the project is way too big for us to do in our own power, and it can only be accomplished through God's strength. So Nehemiah just kept leading these people in prayer. He kept encouraging them and reminding them of God's matchless power. And it's when we see how God works in ways that we could never uh, even ask or imagine, that is when our, strength, our faith is strengthened, and that's when God is glorified and gets the credit for work that we could never have done in our own power. Well, Nehemiah knew how to encourage the people, and he knew how to strengthen them uh, to complete this task at hand. And so uh, he was able to organize the Jews, and he was able to, to strengthen them. Uh, but more importantly, he was able to keep their eyes focused on God, uh, who has this power, who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine, and who makes the impossible possible. Nehemiah was not paralyzed by fear. He prayed, and then he took action. And here's his response. I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. And when I saw their fear, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So Nehemiah increased the strength of the guard. He strengthened or stationed entire families with swords and spears and weapons. 
And that's the human side of his defense, right? Their physical assets were people and whatever weapons they could muster up. But Nehemiah also reminded them that their assets were not limited to only their physical assets. They had spiritual assets. The God, the creator of the universe, was fighting on their side. So what else do they need? God himself would fight for them. Well, did God fight for them? Well, I would argue that he most certainly did, even though he never had to strike a blow because the conspiracy was foiled just by the presence of Nehemiah and the armies that he set up uh, with their weapons. Here's how the conspiracy was foiled. <clears throat> now, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them kept hold of the spears, the shields, the bows, and the coats of mail, and the captains were built behind all the house of Judah. Those who re were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens kept with one hand doing the work and the other keeping hold of a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword strapped to his waist as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. As I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, assemble to us there, and our God will fight for us. So God never had to strike a blow. As soon as uh, Nehemiah's enemies saw that they were well-organized, well-assembled, and the defenses of God, they shrunk back. They didn't want to fight a battle that they knew that they would lose. So their enemies had hoped that they would cave in to their threats and intimidation, and Nehemiah wouldn't let that happen. And through Nehemiah, God was able to make sure that the Jews had adequate physical ability to defend themselves and the spiritual strength to engage in the battle and meet the opposition. So Israel may have appeared weak to the opposition, but Israel had a big, big God who was ready to fight on their side. So Nehemiah's ability to organize them and to plan and to prepare a strategy if their enemies attacked gave, gave them great confidence. And Nehemiah's planning gave them peace as well, uh, and, and they were able to keep building. So Nehemiah has this great confidence in God, and that confidence was contagious. And he told them that wherever the battle is, God would be there and God would fight for them. So don't be afraid. Even though the opposition was intense, they continued to build and they continued to see results. Now, I think that people want to follow leaders who believe in a big God who is able to accomplish things way beyond what we could ever imagine. And so Nehemiah knew that the task was immense, but he also knew that he served a big God, and there is no task that is too big for God. And so Nehemiah was convinced that God would show up and that he would fight for them. And then Nehemiah's conviction became the Jews' conviction. They all believed because Nehemiah believed, because that's the kind of leader he was. And that's how Nehemiah saw God. He saw God as a big God, capable of incredible things. And he didn't look at human opposition as though that were the end all. He knew that God was bigger than anything that they might face. And so Nehemiah even planned for how the project would proceed, even in the face of this increased threat, as he makes plans for the future in verses 21 to 23. We carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, each man with his servant shall spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us 
removed our clothes, each took his weapon, even to the water. Now, can you imagine this? I mean, if this were a work crew today, they'd be getting double time, right, uh, for, for many, many hours for all the overtime that they put in. Uh, you know, if you uh, live around here uh, during the summertime with all the construction going on in the Dallas area, uh, you can see these guys who are working on roofs in the summer uh, from dawn all the way till dusk. I, I honestly have no idea how they do it without dropping dead. It's, it's just so unbelievably hot. Well, if you've ever been to Israel in April and May, uh, it can get Texas hot in Israel at that time of year too. It's really hot there at that time of year. And so these workers that Nehemiah had are working 12 to 16 hours a day toiling in that hot sun, difficult weather conditions, and in the face of these enemies who wanted to kill them and stop this work on this project. And so Nehemiah says, we're, we're all going to wear swords, we're going to have shields, and we're not even going to take our clothes off even to go down to the water because they might have to be ready to fight at any moment. I imagine they must have smelled pretty ripe after a while. <laughs> but uh, this is what is required. When you're facing an army like this, uh, you have to be ready. So Nehemiah trusted in God who allowed this work to continue by staving off Israel's enemies. Uh, and he still prepared and he still worked. So he didn't just sit around and wait for God to miraculously throw up the wall, right? He prayed, he encouraged, and he acted. And so whenever God calls us, whenever he asks us to do something, whenever we step out in faith, we have these two things that are happening simultaneously. We have God who has called us. He's given us a vision. He's given us a dream. He's given us a strategy. He's given us a job to do. And he promises to be with us in it. And then at the same time, we have to have the faith to go and actually do the work. And these two things work together. And as we, we put our hands to the plow and we start to do the work and we realize that there are obstacles, there are things in our way, there's opposition, it's not as easy as we had hoped it would be, but we just keep praying and we keep trusting uh, and, and we, we, we believe that God will see us through it because we are in God's will and God always sees his will done. So we trust, we work, and we watch God accomplish what only God can accomplish. Now, this chapter, this entire chapter of increased opposition to Nehemiah, it reminds me of the situation that we as Christians are facing today, right? We are under increasingly intense opposition uh, from people who don't like us because we're Christians. We're no longer the majority, right? We're, we're not even a respected minority anymore. And now we are scorned and we're ridiculed and we're seen as hateful and bigoted fundamentalists uh, for believing that God has spoken absolute truth in his Bible and that he's given us the only path to salvation and that what he says in the Bible must be obeyed. And all we're trying to do as Christians is to show uh, the world that we are all desperate sinners in need of a savior. And yet the world doesn't want to be told that. The world doesn't want to hear about its sin. It doesn't want to hear about its need for a savior. And so the world will continue to mock us. And in the U.S., we will be lucky if, that, if mocking is all it is, right? Because around the world, we know that our Christian brothers and sisters are being killed for their Christian faith. And so we're going to be uh, opposed with greater and greater vitriol as time goes on. It's only going to get worse. So what do we do? Well, I would propose that we do just what Nehemiah did. We pray, we encourage each other, and we keep working. We keep working, we keep doing the job that God has called us to do. So... This is Nehemiah. Uh, he is a man of God, a man with a big God, a man with a big vision, 
who knows uh, that he can only accomplish this with God's help. So he's speaking to God and he's speaking to the people and he's encouraging them to the work while he trusts his big God. So let's think about a couple of applications as we close. And the first one I think is this, that we ought to expect spiritual warfare if we're obedient to God's calling. You know, it's, it's easy to read about Nehemiah's challenges and all the opposition that he faced and say, well, yeah, it's just a bunch of evil people, wicked people who are trying to stop the work for their own particular reason. And that's true, but we can easily forget that Nehemiah not only faced physical intimidation, but this is spiritual warfare that he's facing. Spiritual warfare is when Satan and his demons try to discourage us and try to uh, stop the people from the work and from faith in every possible way. And so when you look at it from that angle, you see Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and the Ashdodites. These are agents of Satan. These are tools in Satan's hands who are doing his bidding and opposing Nehemiah. So when we step out in faith for God, uh, we can expect the same spiritual warfare. And it may come through people. It may come from obstacles. But its source is Satan. And so the only solution is prayer. Like Nehemiah prayed uh, at every turn, we must too, because spiritual obstacles, spiritual battles can only be won with spiritual solutions. We pray and God carries us through and God is bigger than our obstacles and, and his battles are, are, are easily won because he is God. He's bigger than Satan and sometimes God unleashes his power in response to our prayers. And so we'll see that repeatedly in Nehemiah when he was faced with opposition uh, he always prayed, and he encouraged, and then he acted. So expect spiritual warfare if you're obedient to God's calling. And just remember that whatever you're facing, God is bigger. We're always going to have trouble, right? Jesus promised it. In this world, you will have trouble. And we really have only two options. We can either shrink back from what, is God, what God has called us to do, or we can step forward in faith. And Nehemiah knew that he and his people faced an impossible task by human standards. There was no way that they could build this wall. They had unskilled people, inferior tools, bad materials, and enemies trying to stop them. This is only a project that God could possibly complete. So what are you facing now that seems impossible? Uh, a cancer diagnosis, a bad health report from your doctor, financial struggles, broken relationships, uh, unsaved family members. Nothing is impossible for God. God is bigger than any obstacles we are facing. So don't shrink back. We pray, we encourage each other, and we act, and then we watch God do what only God can. Amen? Lord God, we thank you for Nehemiah's witness. What a powerful, powerful man of God. A Lord, a, a man who believed in a God of big, big things. And Lord, I pray that we would be uh, people who believe in a God of big things, Lord. Give us dreams, give us visions, and then Lord, give us the trust and the faith to believe that uh, through your power and desire, we can carry these things out, Lord. And as we think about how we can reach uh, a broken neighborhood uh, and a broken community and a broken world, Lord, uh, give us this kind of vision that Nehemiah had. Uh, help us to uh, pray, help us to encourage each other, Lord, help us to act. Lord, we desperately want to see the world come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through whom salvation comes, Lord. And so we pray for these things, Lord, and ask that you would be with us in this task that you've given us to be the church to a world that desperately needs it. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.